This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.5, Loyalties. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan. And I'm not real, I'm just a hologram. And I'm Nina. If our friend Shara was worried about Amuro, wait till she gets a load of Camille. I think it's Dr. Shar now. Ooh, that's right. Congratulations, Dr. Shar. We can't wait to have you back to talk about the absolute mess that is Camille Badam. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 138 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest patrons, Austin Ramsey, Robert B., and Jellyfish Marine. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com patreon. Those of you who are into tabletop role-playing games may have heard of Austin. He is the GM and community manager for You Don't Meet in an Inn an actual play podcast. And he's a TTRPG designer, best known for Beam Saber, a game about the pilots of massive war machines. You can check it out on his itch page, austin-ramsey.itch.io. We still hope to add an actual play to the bonus content we offer our patrons, but after managing only a handful of recording sessions, we've put it on hold for now. Scheduling is a nightmare. But the actual play podcast that we have been working on does use Austin Ramsey's Beam Saber. And he was good enough to give us permission to do that while it was still in beta. We'd also like to thank a couple of very generous people who bought us items from our wish list. Jeff S. and an anonymous fan. We received a Gundam book that we had wanted for research, as well as a new pop filter. Thank you both very much. And now, let's talk some Gundam. Welcome back to TNN, the Titans News Network, the best-dressed name in news. Our top story tonight... A joint Federation Titans task force is engaged in a high-speed chase in the Side 7 region of space with two unregistered ships believed to be operated by a worthless group called AU that acts like Xeon and criticizes the people of Earth. Here's some footage from our TNN Eye in the Sky news shuttle. Just look at those Hyzaks, the Titans' new mobile suit. Don't they just scream, we are an organization that is not at all the spiritual descendant of the Principality of Xeon? You can say that again, Tom. We are getting reports now that the AU terrorists have taken a hostage. And, yes, now we're hearing that it is little Camilla Byron who was recently reported missing from Green Oasis. And there's Titan's negotiator Lieutenant Machine arriving aboard a Gundam Mark II to try to negotiate the return of the hostage. We're also seeing some sort of capsule approaching the AU ships. We're not sure about its purpose, but it looks like it may be some kind of bomb. 
now someone's coming out of the Ayug ship, and it, it looks like Lieutenant Machine's Gundam. And now one of the Hyzaks is shooting the capsule. I'm sorry, we seem to be having some kind of problem with the video feed. We'll try to get that back. But in the meantime, here's a word from our sponsors. And remember, this is TNN, and we are always watching. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 4, Emma's Decision. And we have research on tiers throughout time and defectors. What are they? How do they work? Now, the recap. Camille cries out from inside the Mark II cockpit, while the crew of the Argama stand, stunned, on the bridge. Emma takes advantage of this moment to take another Mark II and go get Camille. The hangar crew alert Blex, but he has decided to let Emma go. Furious and grieving, Camille launches himself at Jared's Hyzak. While they grapple, the battle continues around them, and Emma arrives to try to separate them, telling Camille to calm down, telling Jared that the pilot he's fighting is just a kid. Out of ammo, Camille looks desperately for any other weapons the Mark II might have, and both Emma and Jared are surprised to see the mobile suit draw a beam saber. But it makes no difference in the wider battle. With the Titans and the regular Federation forces to fight, and the loss of two Mark IIs, Ayug is at a strong disadvantage, and Quattro recommends that they accede to Basque's demands. Besides, he trusts Emma. She doesn't want to fight them. Beckoner agrees, and the ceasefire signal goes out. Quattro in his Rick Diaz grabs Camille's Mark II, pulling him away from Jared. The battle is over. Jared retreats while Camille struggles against Quattro and soon Emma, who hold him back and try to calm him. Once he stops struggling, they leave their mobile suits to try to pull him from the cockpit, but anger has given way to grief and he doesn't respond to them. Emma takes him and the Mark IIs back to the Alexandria. Basque is pleased, and he and Jamaican make plans to attack the Argama as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Camille has locked himself in the Mark II, and it takes two engineers to force the door. Emma greets him, and asks if Hilda was really in the capsule, but he stares straight ahead unresponsive. She slaps him, trying to snap him out of it. It's obvious, isn't it? The fingers of Unit 3 will prove it, he tells her. Still not entirely believing what's happened, Emma goes to check and finds blood on the mobile suit's hand. Franklin, Camille's father, arrives in the hangar. Camille floats down to him and tells him that Hilda is dead, killed by the Titans. With shadows under his eyes, Camille lets out a creepy chuckle. Things will go much smoother for you and your young lover now. Franklin slaps him hard across the face, telling him to stop, demanding to know why Hilda had to die. Camille says he doesn't know, but that the ones responsible are the Titans. An angry Franklin goes to confront Basque, but has his mistress thrown in his face again. Isn't this good news for you, Basque asks. The bridge crew all stare at Franklin out of the corner of their eyes, and Franklin backs down. As Camille is being dragged to a cell, Jared comes up the passage behind him, taunting him about his grief over the death of his mom. I didn't know your mom was in that capsule. It must be hard to lose her since you're such a baby. Go ahead, hit me, like you did in the spaceport before. Though he looks like he wants to do just that, Camille calms immediately when Emma lays a hand on his arm. I see. This is a serviceman's fate. 
A military officer must abide by the orders of his superior, without even considering the circumstances. I forgive you. I learned today that I must direct my hatred at the military. I'm good enough to beat you and your Hyzak. Camille gets the last word, and Jared is left sputtering. Wait! Come back! Emma holds him back. You've lost this one. Have some self-respect. We then cut to Basque and Emma in the middle of a conversation. I'd prefer not to use hostages, Basque tells her mildly. Next time, why don't you show me how you would do it? I want you to capture the Argama's new mobile suit in a fair manner. I know you can do it, Lieutenant, since you are so capable that you're willing to question me. Don't worry, you don't have to do it alone. You may work out a strategy with Lila's team and use the Mark IIs. But sir, Emma swallows her complaint about the seemingly impossible and clearly punitive assignment. A short while later, a Titan in their normal suit, helmet obscuring their face, floats down the hallway where the prisoners are being kept and punches out the guard. It is Emma. First, she goes to Franklin's cell, asking if he is able to pilot a Mark II. Will you consider escaping with me? She asks. When he asks what happens if he refuses, she points to her gun, and Franklin quickly agrees to go with her. Their next stop is Camille's cell. He isn't sure that Emma is telling the truth, but wants to rejoin Ayug all the same. He also wonders what his father is up to, agreeing to come along. Emma and Camille fight a couple of pilots, taking their normal suits as disguises for Camille and Franklin. They head straight to the hangar and into the Mark IIs, but Jared suspects something is off when he tries to talk to the pilot who he thinks is Kaklakon, but gets no response and a cockpit door shut in his face. The Alexandria crew try to stop them, but it's too late. If they don't open the hatch, Emma will blast it open. The three escapees take off, and Camille is impressed with Franklin's ability to pilot. Basque is shocked by Emma and Franklin's defections, and orders them pursued by Lila's group. The Argama sends its own mobile suits as reinforcements, and they are able to lead the Mark IIs safely back to Ayug. Quattro is suspicious of Emma's decision, but Camille insists that she is a good person. While the rest of them talk, Franklin wanders over to the Rick Diaz, caring only for a closer look at Ayug's new mobile suit. Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 4, Emma's Decision, or Emma no Daso. Which, some of you may recall, is very similar to the title of an episode from First Gundam. Amuro Daso, when Amuro deserted the white base. And we've now seen Emma maybe desert the Titans? Question mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know where this is going, but Nina kept wondering throughout the whole time we were watching the episode, is this real or is this part of Emma's plot? Tom pointed out, as we were going over the details of the episode, this is really an episode about Emma. Not only is the episode named for her, but also throughout the whole episode, everyone is talking about her and thinking about her and wondering what she's doing and which side she's on and what her plans are. From the time when Emma breaks up the fight between Jared and Camille and returns to the Titans fleet, Everyone on the Argama is just sort of sitting around and waiting for Emma to do something. They keep talking about Emma. They keep saying, Quattro, what do you think of that Emma person? Could Emma be a new type? Do you think we're going to see Emma again? Oh, I really think that we can trust this Emma person. 
Quattro seems completely convinced that Emma's not really with the Titans. Obviously, she joined the Titans. But they can all tell from when she was on their ship, she's not a Titan. She didn't really know what she was getting into. She finds all their methods totally unacceptable. She's altogether, like, too principled (laughs) to be a Titan. Though why they're so confident that something's going to happen immediately, I don't know. Well, and and to be fair, Quattro kind of lies to them, right? Quattro <laughs> tells the rest of the bridge crew, the captain and the commodore, that he thinks that Franklin might desert and join Ayug, that Franklin might desert the Federation or the Titans and join Ayug. Mm-hmm. But in a very Tomino kind of storytelling trick, what he actually tells them, we don't know. It's another of those conversations that happens off screen. Well, somebody says... Oh, you think Franklin might join Ayug, huh? Or something like that. Right. Like, but Quattro's response to that is, if, hey, if that's what you took away from what I just said, more power to you. Yeah. If you think that's a good reason, then yes, that's the reason I'm giving you. <laughs> He's so upfront about it. Let, let's go with that. <laughs> they didn't pull that out of nowhere. He is upfront about it, but he, he offers up some other reason mm-hmm. to wait as a fig leaf. Right. I'm just saying it seems like he lies very naturally, but doesn't actually know how lying works. He doesn't understand that after you've told a lie, you're not supposed to then say that it was a lie. One gets the impression they are very used to him. (laughs) And so they just take his weirdness in stride. Mm -hmm. They also talk about, hey, is Emma a new type? (laughs) Every new person they meet now, is that person a new type? I have, it, I have it down in my notes. Quattro is a new type dowsing rod. I was just going to say that. They just point him at people and ask if this is a new type. I feel like you must have said it earlier because the term dowsing rod was stuck <laughs> in my head. And I was going to be like, like some sort of new type dowsing rod. <laughs> like a new type detector. <laughs> he just makes a clicking noise whenever he's pointed at a new type. It clicks faster when it's closer. <laughs> oh, Camille must have just arrived. <laughs> And I don't remember any of them after Emma left and Camille was captured saying, oh, I hope Camille comes back. Uh, Must be rough to be captured by the Titans. Poor Camille. Camille's a kid, not a trained soldier. Shrug. Like from a from a totally mercenary perspective, Camille needs training before he's any good to them. True, true. Assuming they trust Emma, which why, though? (laughs) Uh, But assuming they trusted... Because the captain is sweet on her. Did you catch that? No. There's a bit when he's talking to Quattro and he's like, personally, I sure would like to see Emma again. And as he does it, he has this like kind of casual, just two guys talking about girls pose. Oh, I think I interpreted that completely differently as we're just talking casually about the situation and it sure would be nice to have more soldiers. (laughs) There were moments that came up repeatedly in first Gundam that I think of as toxic masculinity moments. (laughs) Uh, And we get our first of these in this episode, and it's Emma. Mm -hmm. Camille, within moments, perhaps, of being able to rescue his mother, instead sees her killed right in front of him, right when he was about to save her. And he loses it, understandably. Mm -hmm. Emma and Quattro are trying to break up uh, essentially like a wrestling match between him and Jared because Camille runs out of ammunition uh, and decides to just tackle Jared instead. So they're pulling them apart. And Emma, very misguidedly, I think, trying to calm Camille down, uh, says something along the lines of, there's nothing so disgraceful as a hysterical man. 
And it's Quadro who immediately tells her, leave him be. Stop sticking needles in him. And worth pointing out, this is clearly a new idea. Because in First Gundam, we never saw any male character berated for being sad. No. Not once. Grief was acceptable. Grief was normal. It was natural. It was good, even. We had the scene of everyone weeping over you, Jose's death. Uh, we had one of the bridge crew members talking about how men just feel things so strongly, don't they? It seemed very natural. We get some toxic moments where Amaro is treated like a coward <laughs> when he's clearly traumatized. <laughs> Essentially, people telling him to man up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> get in the Gundam, Amaro. <laughs> Amaro, your dad loves you. Get in the Gundam. Ooh. Um... But this is a definite cultural shift. I don't know whether this is about change in culture over time or that perhaps Emma is of a very different culture. But Emma effectively tells him, like, man up, quit freaking out. Showing any emotion about the fact that your mom just got killed right in, right front, in front of, of you. you makes you disgraceful. I think it's that he's lost control. Losing control is disgraceful. Mm -hmm. If you're a man. Because she's real specific about that. Yes, absolutely. So that's gross. Yeah. Also just contrasts, interestingly, with the fact that she clearly cares what Camille thinks of her. Yeah. And I don't know if she meant to be mean, if she truly believes that men shouldn't lose control of their emotions in that way, or if she was saying it hoping that it would make Camille angry <laughs> and snap him out of it in that way. Part of what made hearing Emma say this so shocking for me is that I just finished reading Tale of the Heike, which is a classic of Japanese literature, like war story from the late Heian period. And it's full of all of these noble warriors, and they cry all the time. They're the most emotional people you can imagine. They kill their enemies and then cry about how tragic it is that such a noble person had to die. There's nothing more noble and manly than to be overcome by emotion if something tragic happens if something sad is in front of you so i don't remember a source for this but i feel like at some point in my sort of japan studies education reading about or talking about the fact that the ability to feel things strongly was at various points in japanese history a mark of refinement it meant you were a, a noble person with a you know finely honed sensitivities to not be moved by things, beautiful, sad, whatever, to not be moved as you went through the world was a mark of barbarians. It meant you weren't cultured. It meant you weren't, you couldn't like be an exceptional person and not be moved by things. Uh, are the Titans barbarians? Are the Titans Westerners? Same difference. <laughs> That's, uh, six yeah. six of yeah. one, half a dozen of the other. Because that is something we see more commonly in the West, this idea that you're not supposed to express your feelings. You're not supposed to let your feelings overwhelm you. It's all supposed to be very tightly controlled, even at times of extreme emotion. You know, it's interesting. I'm sure this is just a coincidence, but we do keep coming back to imperialism and colonialism. And one of the things about colonial empires is that they tend to impose a very stiff, reserved, emotionally locked down Western European idea of masculinity onto cultures that have a much broader, looser, and more sensitive idea of masculinity. Oof. She starts out from the very untightened position of attempting to prevent her mission from becoming violent. 
She does everything she can to prevent further violence in the course of the mission. She breaks up Camille and Jared. She brings everybody in without any additional destruction or loss of life. And she accomplishes the mission she was sent out to perform. She brings back the Mark IIs. We also know that she was brave enough to complain to Basque directly <laughs> that she didn't think the use of hostages was acceptable. We don't actually see her complain. We only see the aftermath of it. We see Basque's response, uh, which is very like, oh, well, if you think you're so great, Mm -hmm. that you're willing to question me, then here's an impossible mission. Go do it. Right. The idea is not actually, well, let's see you do it. Let's see you go prove yourself. The idea is you're going to fail. This is a punishment. Right. Whatever punishment you end up receiving for your failure is going to be the punishment for talking back to me. Basically, that's the impression one gets, including in her reaction. She's clearly angry. <laughs> Well, and we've seen Basque do this before, although in different ways, when he is giving his note to Bright to deliver, and first he holds it out, and then he pulls it away so that Bright has to, like, fall forward quite painfully. Basque is always bullying people. He's always punishing people with things that don't look overtly like punishment. Right. I mean, he's giving Emma a command, which to everyone else in the Titans looks like a reward. But it's a command for an impossible mission, therefore it is a punishment. He won't let Jared be part of the mission at all, because all Jared wants is to prove himself, <laughs> and he keeps messing up <laughs> so badly. Yep. Yeah, Jared is just the boy who couldn't do anything right. But to focus back on Emma, we then see her very quickly and methodically and calmly break Camille and Franklin out of their holding cells, uh, injure but not kill the guards sort of threaten Franklin that if he doesn't come with them, she'll shoot him. He takes her seriously. I don't really think she'd have done it, but <laughs> eh. very calmly uh, threatened to shoot her way out of the Alexandria if she has to. There was some passion in that. That wasn't total calm. Not complete, but she seems very self-possessed. She seems very in control of herself. Uh, for all that she didn't have much time, she seems pretty clear on what her plan is. Yeah, I would agree with in control. She's very much in control of herself and the situation. And then she gets to the Argama, and we come to one of the heavy conversations of the episode. Uh, there were really three conversations in this episode that I felt did a lot of heavy lifting character-wise that told us a lot about the characters in the show and more through their body language and their facial expressions than through their words. Let's talk about her arriving. Everyone's there to meet her, which is normal. They don't arrest her immediately, which... I mean, she brought them three mobile suits. And two useful dudes, but still, she's the enemy. The translation's a little rough here. They ask her, like, oh, don't you think it's very inconsistent of you to, like, be a titan but then abandon the titans? Mm-hmm. And she says, no, I see it as being entirely consistent with my own Personal. true and inner beliefs. And Quattro is kind of questioning her. And at one point, Camille pipes up and says that she is a good person. And she doesn't say anything, but she smiles. She's happy. She's pleased that Camille thinks she's a good person. That matters to her. Mm -hmm. We've seen them have those weird little moments of connection. Well, and Camille's face is always very expressive. He's very emotive. And here he has a kind of like wide-eyed, not quite innocent, but like genuine affection. He really does like Emma and thinks she's a good person. 
but I still don't know <laughs> if she really deserted or if this is some kind of triple cross. Because <laughs> if, if she shows up back at the Alexandria having done exactly what they asked of her, she will have completed the impossible mission. She will have shown up a Basque who clearly annoys the heck out of her. <laughs> True. Though I strongly suspect, given the kind of organization that the Titans is, if she does manage to show up Basque, it's not going to work out well for her. That's not like, congratulations, here's a promotion. Oh, I agree with you. But Emma has already shown repeatedly that she does not understand the organization she joined. True. Although she did... Is it still pistol whipping if you have the like butt of the pistol in your hand and you crack somebody across the jaw with it? I have no idea. Well, she did whatever that is. One of the fellow Titans, which is a very Titans kind of thing to do. But she didn't kill him. The fact that she didn't kill anyone as she deserted is part of what leaves me feeling kind of like, maybe she didn't really. Mm. She did let an enraged Camille beat that out of two Titans. That's true. That was pretty slick, too. Yeah. I love the way they animate Camille fighting in more... low gravity and zero gravity. We need more karate in Gundam. Space karate, Tom. <laughs> we don't see most of the fight. We see him like punching Kakrakon in the face and then it cuts to Franklin being useless. And then we go back to Camille and he's already finished off both of these guys and he just like jumps up into the air and then like power punches one of the dudes out of the midair and into the bulkhead. It's amazing fight choreography. More of that, please. So it has that like real fighting feel to it. It has the verisimilitude of a good martial arts sequence, of a good fight sequence. And yet, it's also something that could only happen either in zero-G or with wires. Yep. And maybe it's not 100% accurate, hmm. but it sure looks right. In that scene at the end, when Emma has just boarded the Argama with Camille and Franklin, we have the Camille Quattro Emma conversation going on, where Quattro is clearly trying to get a feel for Emma but does not seem suspicious of her at all. And Camille is there to provide his own two cents. Emma seems like a good person. Silent eye roll. She's trying to make me into a better man. Gross. And then in the background, we have Franklin wandering around looking at the Rick Diaz because <laughs> he's never seen one before going like, this is an AU mobile suit. Oh, this is so cool. Like, <laughs> he is the guy from the meme. <laughs> cool mobile suits. <laughs> While the war goes on all around him. Mm-hmm. And Camille kind of mutters to himself what amounts to, like, geez, dad, read a room. <laughs> like, can't you tell that important things are happening right now? Mm -hmm. And this begs us to compare Franklin to Tem, Ray, from the first series. And he comes out looking worse. Because Tem at least cared about who won. Tem had a side. Mm -hmm. Franklin doesn't appear to care really at all. He wasn't willing to risk being shot rather than go with Emma. He doesn't really care about the politics of their situation. He just wants to look at mobile suits and maybe perfectly happy building mobile suits for Ayug rather than for the Titans and not really care. Yeah, Franklin's whole deal is hard to figure out. I assume we'll get a lot more about that later because we also get a scene of Franklin and a Basque. And this is Franklin charging onto the bridge. You killed my wife. Basque however, has just overheard Camille confronting his father about Margarita, his father's mistress or lover or girlfriend. Basque is so happy when he hears that. 
he lights up like a kid being told he's going to go to the candy store. Oh, oh a mistress. A mistress. Leverage. Right. A club I can beat him with. Which leads me to that scene because Franklin comes in confronting Basque. You killed my wife. You had me as a hostage. Like, you've got a mistress. And everyone in the room looks out of the corner of their eye at this conversation. Very judgy. So judgy is one interpretation, that they're all like, That guy's got a mistress. Gross. And, the, and here he is pretending to be all outraged that his wife is dead, but actually he has a mistress. The other interpretation of this scene is that Basque is threatening him. I know you have a mistress. Plenty more women you care about where Hilda came from. Mm. Like, how hard do you think it would be for me to find her? How mm. hard do you, like, I know about this person you care about. Mm -hmm. And everyone is watching to see how Franklin reacts to being threatened. You know what this scene reminded me of? What? When Mirai and Cameron Bloom are having a fight on the bridge. Mm. And everybody else on the bridge is just, like, looking at the fight happening. And we do all these cuts to like this group of people watching it, this group of people watching it, mm -hmm. this group of people watching it. It is similar, though I think in the case of the White Base Bridge, everyone is watching more openly. Nobody is inserting themselves into the situation. Mm -hmm. But in this case, on the Bridge of the Alexandria, everyone is kind of pretending that they're still working <laughs> and out of the corner of their eye, mm -hmm. looking off at this confrontation between Basque and Franklin. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I thought it was a, about them being judgy rather than curious what's going to happen mm -hmm. is from the cinematography, it felt like Franklin notices all of them watching him. Mm -hmm. And that's when he decides to like back off because off, he's kind of like ashamed but, about the mistress thing. Possibly. But I don't know, though. He just seemed so shameless about <laughs> the mistress before. Like, why why be ashamed now? Well, because before he was talking about the mistress with a woman, his wife, and a child, his son, who he doesn't care about. Now these are other men, other titans. Yeah. Mm. I suppose I find it somewhat hard to believe that you've got a whole room of people who feel uh, that strongly about it. Like, people having affairs is not all that uncommon. Mm -hmm. And, like... It wasn't all that long before this show was made that it would have been, like, assumed that men would have had at some time or another. True. But you know what fascists do. Mm. For the benefit of any listeners who don't know what I'm referring to, <laughs> one of the things that fascists do is very public displays of conservative morality and usually the creation of strictly enforced law codes designed to shame and punish anyone who violates those very strict, very conservative ideas of morality. Going back to the handful of incidents we see of uh, Franklin interacting with his son, though, we see that frustration at the end. As they are fleeing the Alexandria, Camille expresses, again, like, gosh, Dad, you're always in the way. <laughs> Which seems like a feeling he had about both of his parents. But in a, a first moment of ambivalence, we also see Camille feel some admiration for his father. When they first launch off of the Alexandria and his father has to pilot one of the Mark IIs, he has a very smooth takeoff. He just, like, goes for it. Mm -hmm. 
And Camille mutters to himself in his own cockpit, like, wow, dad, I'm impressed. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think ambivalent may be the right word to describe Camille's feelings, probably about both of his parents. He doesn't just hate them, and maybe it would have been easier if he had. I felt similar whiplash just watching Camille's general emotions and behavior throughout the episode. You know, one minute, he's breaking down. The next minute, he's entirely unresponsive. And then in the third of our heavy conversations, of our important conversations of the episode, we see that initial impulse to anger and violence. And then we see this weird maturity and understanding that we haven't seen before from him. So the conversation that Nina is talking about is actually, while it's the third one we're talking about, it is the first one to happen in the show. And it's when Camille has been captured by the Titans. He's being escorted through their battleship corridor. And Jared takes this opportunity to just erase any hope that his character was salvageable by taunting Camille and calling him a mama's boy. And telling him, go ahead, hit me again. Although I have to say, I saw that and I interpreted that as actually Jared feeling very guilty. And wanting to taunt Camille into hitting him because it would make it would make him Jared feel better. Oh, I agree. This is Jared punishing himself. I would say this is Jared trying to absolve himself. What he's saying is in the form of an excuse, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know that your mother was in that capsule. Yeah, that's true. But then because he's Jared, he immediately turns it around into a needle to try to stick into Camille. It must be hard for you, poor baby. Oh, you just watched your mother die. Oh. Obviously, I, a grown adult, wouldn't care if my mom died. And here again, although she has maybe one line in the whole scene, we see Emma's calming influence. We see Emma's tendency toward peace. Camille becomes immediately angry. He clenches a fist. You see his arm move like he wants to hit Jared. She just lays a hand on his arm. That's all she does. I'm not sure she even looks at him. And he immediately goes calm. And gives us a little speech about how he understands now that... And, and some of this is him sticking needles back in Jared, right? Oh, yeah. There's an intermediary step in there, oh. which is that his face falls like he's going to start crying again. Right? Mm. And then he pulls it together. Maybe because he doesn't want to look disgraceful in front of Emma again. Or give Jared the satisfaction. Yeah. But he pulls himself together. He seems very calm, but very detached, right? Mm -hmm. So I understand now. Like, you're just a soldier, and soldiers have to do what they're ordered to do, right? Well, the problem is the army. The army is my enemy, not you. In fact, I forgive you. I don't care about you. You're not important enough. Oh, and by the way, as he's being led away by the guards, I can beat you in a mobile suit <laughs> fight anyhow, so. Yeah, and this is... Not only is this absolutely devastating, right? Not only has Camille figured out precisely, exactly where Jared's big flashing weak point is, but also in the animation, you can see Camille winding up to deliver this. He knows he's about to say something devastating. This is Camille basically saying, I'm about to end this guy's whole career. <laughs> and of course, Jared's immediate reaction is very like, wait, come back. <laughs> I want to punch you. I can't let you have the last word. I don't just do what people tell me, except that's exactly my life. And then Emma stops him. Let it go. He's won this round. Yep. He's being led off into space jail by space Nazis, and he's still 
won this round. He trounced you again. Are the Titans space Nazis? Are they not? I don't know. I thought we had left World War II behind, is what I say to myself every day when I read the news. <laughs> I was going to say. So I guess my takeaway on Camille this episode is that because of his age, because of his maturity, because of sort of where he is in his life now, we see all these contrasts. He loves his parents and he hates his parents. He has control. He has no control. He can be mature. He can be unthinking. He's all of it because he's 17. I'm deeply curious about the surprise of both Emma and Jared when Camille draws a beam saber. Yeah. And they're both like, a beam saber? They are very surprised to see one. Well, and they do the like showy little audio trick where one person says the first half of the word and the other person says the second half. So we can tell how surprised they both are by it. But like every mobile suit we've seen so far in Zeta has a beam saber. The Rick Diaz, I believe, has a beam saber. The Jim 2 definitely has a beam saber. The Hyzak has a beam saber. They've both been training on Mark IIs. How do they not know that the Mark II has a beam saber. Yeah, did no one tell them? I mean, their training seems to consist of crashing into civilian <laughs> buildings, so maybe not. Or are they just surprised that Camille knew it was there? But no, the, the reaction seems very much like, huh, a beam saber. I don't know. Are they, are, are they frightened? Are they like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> he drew a beam saber. Well, and the power of the beam saber has definitely declined relative to first Gundam. Because in First Gundam, the beam saber was like a cut through anything kind of weapon for most of the show. It was only toward the very end when Amuro would cut things with the beam saber and they would not immediately be destroyed. Mm -hmm. But in this episode, at one point, we see a Hyzak like wailing on a Rick Dias with the beam saber. And the Rick Dias has its shield, its upgraded shield chan. Mm -hmm. And it's just blocking the beam saber slashes with no particular problem whatsoever. So yeah, that whole thing, like clearly it's purposeful, but I don't totally understand <laughs> why. It also just hadn't occurred to me in the early episodes of the show that the Federation and the Titans hadn't seen a Rick Diaz. No one had seen one up close because they're acting like it's such a big thing to get close to one, to observe it, mm -hmm. which you'd have thought, well, this is contemporary brain thinking. My first reaction was like, wouldn't you just have had a ton of photo and video from the attack on the colony mm -hmm. that you could analyze? But that's because it's 2019 and everyone <laughs> has an incredibly powerful camera or video recorder in their pocket all the time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that would not have been the case in the mid 80s. Even the quality of like surveillance style footage would not have been great. Mm -hmm. They would have been recording to tapes. Mm -hmm. It had not occurred to me that somehow not only is Ayug building ships, but they are developing and building mobile suits in secret. And a pretty good one, too. Somebody back there has deep pockets. That's all I can say. Hmm. And connections. And the final thing I noticed about the world is I got the strong impression that almost everyone is much more comfortable in space, in low and zero gravity, than they were in First Gundam. In First Gundam, we frequently saw people have difficulty with it. Here we see people reacting very easily to the fact that, like, there is no up. Mm -hmm. you know, they're orienting however is useful to be oriented for the purposes of what they're doing. They <laughs> There's a brief scene on the bridge of the Agama where uh, Blex walks into the bridge and 
Captain Beckner is just floating horizontally in midair. Yep. When Emma and Quattro go to try and get Camille out of the Mark II that he's in, Quattro appears to us upside down. They're in space, so there is no upside down, but Mm -hmm. he's just oriented however worked for him. Uh, Well, and even the way that we see an adult, someone who probably would have had more difficulty in the previous series, like Franklin, as they're leaving, and he's moving through the Alexandria very comfortably. This is not an unusual experience anymore. It's not as specialized a skill as it used to be. Mm -hmm. I have a note about the animation. About it. We've talked about how much smoother and more active the animation in Zeta is and how pretty the opening is. But as I've been watching more of the show and watching various scenes very closely, what I've noticed is that while the animation looks a lot better, the individual frames are not nearly as pretty as they were in First Gundam. And I think the reason for that is in First Gundam, they got around a lot of their limitations just by drawing really beautiful individual shots. Keyframes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, because of the limited color palette, because of the insistence from the sponsors that everything be bright primary colors, when these mobile suits were flying around in space, they were still brightly lit and they were still easy to see, especially against the black background of space. But now we have a lot of muddier colors, darker colored mobile suits, flying around in space, and they're just much harder to see. Lila's in this episode, but she doesn't do anything terribly important. Shame. This week, we research and discuss tears through time and defectors. What are they? How do they work? During the talkback, we briefly discussed toxic masculinity. And I pointed out that tears, weeping really, was once, and for most of recorded human history, regarded as an essential part of ideal masculine behavior. That was true across cultures and throughout time. And if that comes as a surprise to you, well, that itself is no surprise, because at least in the West and in those parts of the world most influenced by the West, a relatively new conception of what it means to be a man has taken hold and it has little tolerance for men's emotions. The term toxic masculinity can be controversial, but the idea behind it really is not. So within our society's idea about the behaviors and attitudes that are proper for a man, there are some ideas that we call toxic because they tend to cause physical, social, or psychological harm to men themselves, to other people around them, and to society as a whole. These include ideas like, men must always be dominant, men who behave affectionately with other men are gay, being gay is unmanly, it's normal for men to be violent, boys will be boys, men are naturally competitive, men always want sex, men must be tall and buff, manliness is inseparable from the male genitalia, and the bigger they are, the more of a man the person attached to them is, dads are more permissive than moms, men take more risks, real men don't drink girly drinks. A real man earns more than his assumedly female spouse. A real man is an alpha male, and so on and so on. You kind of get the gist of it. Honestly, just go search for a real man and see what comes up. No, thank you. (laughs) This creates an extremely narrow, fragile, and really brittle idea of what it means to be a man, one that ill serves the men who are subjected to it. 
Not every aspect of masculinity is toxic, and even the ideas I just mentioned aren't necessarily toxic in all circumstances. But part of what makes this such a serious problem is that you don't need to believe any of those things I just said in order to be harmed by them. If you're considered a man by society, you will be punished in multitudinous ways, large and small, for failing to live up to other people's ideas of masculinity. And even in private, even if you don't want to be that kind of man, you can still feel like a failure for not being what you're supposed to be. Perhaps the single most toxic aspect of modern masculinity is that men are expected to express only a narrow range of emotions, which runs from anger to lots and lots of anger just staggering quantities of anger. You'll hear this expressed in a variety of ways, from men feel the same emotions, they just don't make a big deal out of them, to men just don't feel things as strongly as women do. And you'll even hear men honestly, earnestly saying that they just don't have those emotions. They really believe that. They need to. They've spent so much of their lives trying to strangle their own emotions so that they never make an unmanly emotional display that they are now completely disconnected from their feelings. I'm saying they a lot, but this isn't abstract for me. As a man, this is stuff I've personally struggled with most of my life. The strangest thing about this intolerance toward men's emotions is that you don't have to go back very far to find a completely different attitude that is expressed in myth and legend and literature and history. Just go back to the TV version of First Gundam to see the men of the white base sobbing over the wreck of Ryu's fighter and to hear one of the women say, men just feel things so strongly, don't they? How interesting, then, that in the movie version, made just two years later, that line is gone, and the weeping for Ryu has been replaced by a fistfight between Amuro and Hayato. Now, manly tears and male emotion didn't actually disappear overnight like that. It wasn't a change from the 70s to 80s when this happened. But it's still fascinating to see how the progress of even a little bit of time saw those artifacts of masculine emotion edited out of the narrative. But if you look beyond Gundam, you'll find 17th century parliamentarians dissolving into tears during arguments. Arthurian knights poured out tears over brief separations from their lovers and over not being allowed to go to the coolest tournaments. Really? Yeah. Oh. Lancelot breaks down weeping because he's not going to be able to go to a tournament. And the woman that he's with is like, oh, honey, I'll, I'll figure it out. Oh. I'll find a way. It doesn't make him an object of derision or pathetic. He's still Lancelot. <laughs> right. He cares so much, and caring so much about something is valuable, laudatory. The Bible is full of manly tears, as is much of early Christian writing, where the act was viewed as pious. Roman love poetry practically required male weeping. In Homer's Iliad, the entire Greek army spontaneously and unanimously bursts into tears three times. Emperors, princes, and warrior heroes weep in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and The Tale of the Heike, a foundational text for Japanese conceptions of ideal warrior masculinity, is replete with tears of every kind. And not just tears. In the Iliad, when Patroclus is slain, Achilles goes wild, even insane with grief. He flings himself on the ground, he tears his hair, and then, cradled in the arms of his friend Antilochus, who weeps and holds both of Achilles' hands out of fear that the grief-struck man might kill himself, Achilles screamed so loud in sorrow that his divine mother heard him, though she sat in her palace in the depths of the sea, whereon she screamed, and all the goddesses that dwelt within the sea joined her, beating their breasts and echoing Achilles' wild lament in their multitudes. That gave me chills. Thank you. 
Achilles' rage permeates the Iliad from the very first word, which itself is rage. It is his tragic, heroic flaw, a force so powerful it defies even the gods and fate. But here, his grief penetrates it. And later, after he has avenged Patroclus and slain the Trojan prince Hector, it will be grief again, this time in the form of a tearful appeal from Hector's father, Priam, in the very last book of the poem that breaks through the fog of rage for the last time. The term toxic masculinity actually comes from the 1980s-era mythopoetic men's movement, a men's self-help sort of group that saw modern masculinity as a dangerously warped reflection of a lost, deep masculine identity that could be seen in those old texts. And they tried to recapture their true masculine nature through a kind of New Age, neo-primitive revival, complete with imitations of Native American rituals reimagined for the self-help seminar set. Okay, so that last part is obviously very culturally appropriative and gross, but I would just like to stop you for a moment because, let's hear this again, the term toxic masculinity came from men's self-help. Yep. I think a lot of people think it comes out of feminism, but no, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yep. It comes from men's self-help groups of the 80s and 90s. The mythopoets ended up going to some weird places, but they also had some really good ideas, and I think this is one of them. In the Heike, tears have a special significance. Like many epics that were composed and transmitted orally, Tale of the Heike uses repetitive formulas to describe certain parts of the story. So, for example, major battles are consistently described according to the following formula. First, the overall strategic situation is explained, and the chief commander on each side is identified. Then the important commanders under them are named. The disposition of the forces is explained, and the terrain is described, followed usually by one or two anecdotes about how the armies navigate the terrain. The armies then fight, and after a brief narrative suffices for the overall course of the battle, we go into a series of vignettes that describe in much greater detail the deeds of individual heroes in the battle, usually ending with the death of the hero. A single one of these vignettes can be as long as the whole description of the battle, so this is really where the focus lies. There are usually four or more of them for each large battle, and these two follow a formula. The hero's clothing and weapons are described in detail, down to the color of the laces on his or her armor. Some pertinent heroic detail about their origin is mentioned, they announce themselves to the enemy, a fight ensues, during which many unimportant and unnamed warriors are defeated, characters exhort each other either to live on, to die well, or to perform some other service, and then someone important dies. An anecdote from happier times before the war is told about the deceased to underscore the total tragedy of the death, and then all present, including especially the warrior who did the killing, weep copiously over the death of so noble an enemy. And this is not meant to show that such and such warrior is actually just a big softy. <laughs> Part of the standard language here is to say all the retainers present, tender of feeling or hard of heart, moistened their armor sleeves with tears. Nor are warriors in battle the only men who shed tears. Frustration, fear, melancholy, nostalgia, piety, and love all drive men to nobly moisten their sleeves. In fact, Taira no Shigemori, the most unambiguously good character in the entire tale, whose untimely death in Book 3 guarantees the apocalyptic Genpei War and dooms his entire house, uses his own very strategically deployed tears to convince his enraged father Taira no Kiyomori not to rush off to commit some light treason. As a fun side note, keen-eared listeners will have noticed I said his or her armor earlier, 
because the tale of the Heike features the mythic warrior woman Tomoe Gozen. Her husband was the warlord Kiso no Yoshinaka, and she was the mightiest champion among the tens of thousands of soldiers who followed him. She was in fact so ferocious that her assignment during battle was to seek out and kill enemy commanders on the battlefield. She's amazing. The tale of the Heike, oozing as it is with Buddhist piety and proto-warrior ethics, would have a long life in medieval Japan, where it was used as a guide for proper behavior. But if Heike's weeping warriors in Japan and the sobbing saints in the Christian West were the models of behavior for so long, what changed? When did crying become unmanly? When did expressions of grief become, as Emmachine puts it, hysterical and shameful? The truth is that we don't really know. You can see shades of it in Shakespeare, like in King Henry VI, Part Three, when one character says, I cannot weep, for all my body's moisture scarce serves to quench my furnace-burning heart, nor can my tongue unload my heart's great burthen, for selfsame wind that I would speak withal is kindling coals that fires all my breast, and burns me up with flames that tears would quench. To weep is to make less the depth of grief. Tears then for babes, blows and revenge for me. And by the 1700s, English proto-psychiatrists were starting to treat emotional sensitivity as a medical condition, something they called the English malady, and they were theorizing that some people just had extra-sensitive nerves. This, famously, was also called hysteria in women, or hypochondria in men, and it had symptoms suspiciously close to what we today would call clinical depression. And... Then, as industrialization picked up, factory owners and their agents consciously trained workers to suppress their emotions while working. Feelings, after all, wasted time that was better spent working, and the owners and foremen didn't want some worker getting all emotional and messing up the smooth operation of the factory. Imperialism and colonialism exported this reserved, emotionally suppressed masculinity to the rest of the world, and at the same time reinforced it. There's a common theme in colonialist thought that casts the metropole, which is to say the home country of the colonizers, within terms that they recognized as masculine. It was dominant, productive, and civilized, where civilized means emotionally reserved, stiff upper lip sort of thing. While the colonized nation, both the land and the people, gets cast in terms that the colonizers saw as feminine, submissive, receptive, fertile, and primitive, where primitive means emotionally demonstrative. It is in fact a common trope in the narratives written by early European observers of cultures in, for example, the Americas, that the people there weep with joy upon meeting the Europeans, who are themselves made very uncomfortable by all the emotions being displayed so openly. For native peoples, whether subjected to direct colonization or, as in Japan during the 1800s, dominated politically by mightier imperial powers, one route to better treatment was to adopt Western-style manners of behavior, including the Western discomfort with male feelings. But there's more to Camille's emotional outburst and Emma's effort to shame him into quietude than just a long history of emotional repression for young men. In Japan, masculinity and its expression has long been tied up in struggles over political ideology. In the early Meiji period, government officials started imitating the contemporary European dandy style, complete with frock coat, necktie, high-collared white shirt, gloves, cane, and silk hat. 
They built European-style government buildings, studied European-style manners, and hosted European-style balls and banquets. The leader of this movement was Foreign Minister Inoue Kaoru, and from his perspective, this was all obsessively aimed at one singular purpose, to earn the Western powers' respect and convince them to revise the unequal Anse treaties by showing them that Japan was more like a Western nation than an Asian one. This style, and the people who followed it, would come to be called haikara for their high collars, so I'm going to call them that going forward. At the same time that haikara was becoming the definition of upper-class masculinity, opponents of the ruling party criticized the wasteful, lavish spending of the haikara set, as well as their frequent embarrassing love affairs and their strange insistence on treating women like equals. These opponents advocated for diligence, self-control, moderation, and moral reform in government, although they also mocked the haikara for behaviors like learning other languages, supporting women's rights, and treating their wives as equals. At the same time, these opposition parties started to cultivate a masculine ideal consciously opposed to the haikara dandy. These were called soshi, young former samurai who had come to Tokyo hoping for education and advancement, but found their hopes frustrated and instead turned to political activism. They found positions as enforcers for opposition political parties. They rallied crowds, disrupted speeches by government officials, and intimidated the police who were sent to break up illegal gatherings. The Soshi cultivated brazen attitudes. They wore torn kimono, let their long hair become disheveled, tucked up their sleeves to show off their tanned, muscular arms, and carried clubs so that they were always ready for a fight. They practiced martial arts, cultivated powerful bodies, and advocated violent action to affect social change. They also sang songs, formed theater troops, and even drew some of the very first manga criticizing the government and the haikara running it. What's so fascinating about this is that both sides were very consciously constructing these ideals of masculinity and deploying them as political weapons. Both the haikara and the soshi thought of themselves as exemplifying true, real manhood. And it's kind of impossible now to say whether soshi masculinity eventually displaced haikara masculinity because the opposition political parties ousted the prior government, or if the opposition ousted the government because the soshi idea of masculinity became the socially dominant form. We are now into the early years of the 20th century, and you are probably starting to see the origins of imperial Japanese militarism in the violent masculinity of the soshi. The style they created became known as bankara, which takes the collar part of haikara, but substitutes in ban, meaning savage. As portrayed in media of the day, haikara students studied business. They represented avarice, selfishness, and amorous lust. Bankara students studied law and politics. They rejected decadence and indulgence, and they were always ready to subordinate their own individuality for the good of the nation. The haikara were at the mercy of their own feelings. The bankara trained themselves to suppress their feelings for the good of the group, because that is what real men do. So you've mentioned a lot of tears. These are mostly angry or sad tears. Mm -hmm. uh, in the talkback, I mentioned that in other eras of Japanese history in particular, you also saw tears from people who were looking at something very beautiful or who were actually feeling very happy 
or sort of melancholy, happy and sad feelings <laughs> together. Uh, but all of the demonstrativeness was not necessarily just associated with negative feelings. It could also be associated with positive ones. Did you see much of that in your research or it tended to be? <laughs> so that's actually really interesting. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. Um, because Camille's tears, his emotional reaction was very much grief and anger. Mm -hmm. That's what I focused on. But in a second, I think you'll uh, okay. see what I'm talking about. So Bancara students devoured adventure stories about tough men of action, just like themselves. And in time, many of them went on to become adventurers, forming the vanguard of Japanese imperialism over on the continent. Their masculine ideal, composed of one part violence and one part self-sacrifice, merged seamlessly into the militarist ethics of the 1930s and the 1940s. After the military regime collapsed at the end of the war, the dominant masculine ideal in Japan became that of the salaryman, the steady, reliable, unflappable corporate worker who devotes himself self-sacrificially to his employer all his waking hours from the time he enters service to the day he retires. It's easy to see how that transition happened. It's like they took the loyalty, diligence, and emotional repression of the Soshi, the Bankara, and the militarists, and then they just replaced the violence and the conscious savagery with the refinement, consumerism, and materialism from the old Haikara set. In 1985, when Zeta Gundam was made, the salaryman was still riding high, perhaps at the peak of his cultural power as a masculine ideal. And criticism of the status quo often came wrapped up in a critique of the salaryman. This has gone on longer than I expected when I started, <laughs> but I do want to close with one final bit, and this gets to Nina's question earlier. In the short story Atarashi Shupatsu, or A New Beginning, first serialized in 1943, so during the war, a pure-hearted young soldier in training suddenly bursts into tears and cannot be consoled. His fellow soldiers ask him what is wrong, and when he mentions that he's thinking about his family, a wife, a child, and his elderly mother, the other soldiers mock and berate him, thinking that he is selfishly longing for his loved ones. Later, it turns out that he is actually crying tears of pride, because he is thinking about how selflessly his family has sacrificed in order to enable him to become a soldier. The other soldiers are impressed, and an officer even comments in astonishment about what a splendid mother he must have. The officer is astonished here because there is another wrinkle to all of this. The weeping soldier is from Japanese-occupied Korea, and the prevailing notion at the time was that Korean mothers, unlike good, proper Japanese mothers, were too obsessed with loving their children, and did not give enough thought or time to training their children so that they could be offered up to the nation. Thus, the closeness of the bond between mother and son, too much attachment of the one to the other, served to inhibit the son's willingness to sacrifice himself for the nation. And so, within the terms of the dominant ideal of masculinity at the time, it prevented him from acting like a man. It is the same thing for Camille here, and it says a lot about Emma, the Titans, and the Universal Century, that she defines manhood the same way the Imperial Japanese military propagandists did during World War II. It says a lot about Camille that he resists this dominant idea of masculinity again and again. The very first thing we see him do is skip out of an all-male martial arts club. But then again, he does listen to Emma, doesn't he? 
And as much as Ayug resists the Titans, it's not meaningless that most of the Ayug characters we see are big, buff, masculine dudes with no sleeves so that you can see their big, buff, masculine arms, just like the old Bankara. And the style of sleevelessness, like a lot of them have rough edges. They look almost like somebody tore the (laughs) sleeves off. Some of them it's more polished, but a few of them, it has that rough look to it. Yeah. I think Ayug is more like those rough-edged, hyper-aggressive Bankara activists, the ones who would later turn into the imperial militarists Mm -hmm. in a few years than anyone would like to admit. This seems like an opportune time with Lieutenant Emma's defection to Ayug to talk about defection. What is it? How did it work? Who were some famous defectors who might have influenced Gundam? And it's worth pointing out, defect is the word that Basque uses for what she does, or it's the English translation given. So what is it? Dictionary definition, the desertion of one's country or cause in favor of an opposing one. Desertion from allegiance, loyalty, duty, or the like. Apostasy, just not a word you hear very often. Uh, I wondered, what is the difference between being a defector and a refugee or an asylum seeker? Uh, And it turns out that is a very contentious question, but for the most part, there is no difference. Uh, A big part of it seems to be that you are a defector if you have information of value (laughs) to the country you're defecting to. (laughs) If they can use you for something, you're a defector. Otherwise, you're a refugee. It's worth pointing out, you have to be barred from leaving for it to constitute a defection. So in most cases, a defector has to be like a member of the intelligence community, a member of the government mission, or a soldier. The reason you get so many other types of defectors from the Soviet Union, from communist China, is because regular people, whether they're involved with the government or not, were also barred from leaving the country on a permanent basis like that. Which is why you then get performers, athletes, academics, scientists, as well as spies and military personnel. There are dozens of stories from this time. If you look at Wikipedia's lists of defectors in both directions, dozens of people on both lists. But a few of them struck me as either similar to Emma's situation or reminiscent of events from Zeta, so I tried to confine myself to those. First, let's talk about some of the reasons spies and soldiers defect. The bulk of this section comes from a pretty amazing source, an FBI monograph on Soviet defectors published in 1955 and marked not for dissemination outside the Bureau. Nina, are you doing crimes now? (laughs) No, it is now available on the National Archives website, and I will put a link in the show notes. It breaks down an analysis of 20 defectors from the Soviet Union to the United States. And here's the thing. Discontent with the regime is almost never the only cause. Most of them are discontented in some way, but they also retain a natural affection for their home, a sense of loyalty to its institutions, fear and sadness at being considered a traitor despite the years of service and loyal work that they've put in, not to mention the fear of starting a life over, leaving behind all connections, family, friends, Money also seems relatively unimportant to the decision. There are a couple of cases where money maybe came into play more, and I'll address one of those later, but it's not the primary motivator. The primary motivator in almost every case is fear. 
This can be everything from vague dread or helplessness all the way to obsession with personal safety and the constant feeling that someone is trying to murder you. I mean, why would defecting Russian spies think that somebody might be trying to murder them? This is before they've even made the decision to <laughs> defect, right? Uh, because while the idea might be toyed with for a long time, the ultimate decision is typically quite fast, often because of a sudden recall back to the capital, which typically meant you were going to be executed or imprisoned. This can be related to fears of broader purges. So if you're a spy and you know that a group of people you associate with is being purged, while perhaps you have not been recalled yet, you know it's only a matter of time. And so you begin to make preparations. They did notice that the presence of a wife and children in Russia was a deterrent to defection, because these were all men who defected. But more distant relations did not appear to have any effect. Parents, siblings cousins, grandparents, not an issue. There was always some fear of retaliation against family and friends who remained behind, not to mention the taint of association. But there was some understanding that for the most part, what would happen is those family and friends would renounce you. They never knew what you were doing and you're a horrible person for doing it. And they would be able to go on just as many of these defectors had done to people they had known who had been imprisoned, executed, purged, etc. That was the way it worked. How does this all tie back to Emma? Well, she's seen the viciousness of the Titans, even among their own soldiers. She's become disillusioned by their tactics, and she has been given a possibly career-ending assignment. We discussed in the talkback how Basque is giving her this assignment as a punishment. He doesn't actually think she can do it. It's not meant to be doable. And even if she does do it, I feel like she ends up getting punished for that, too. Her career is over before it's even begun. The fact that she makes the decision almost immediately after being given the assignment, to me, indicates that this is the final straw for her in a lot of ways. And she lacks the kind of ties that would prevent her. She probably has family back on Earth, but no husband, no children. Another interesting point about the specific defections I'm going to discuss is that Japan played a role in most of them. This is speculation on my part, but for some individuals, Japan would have been a kind of gateway. It's close to the eastern coast of Russia. They're a close U.S. ally, but obviously easier to get to than the United States. Mind you, many defectors were already in foreign postings and went straight to the nearest U.S. embassy. <laughs> There was also speculation in the U.S. intelligence community that although tensions ran high, the Soviet Union really needed a Japan as a trading partner, and so they swallowed whatever frustrations they might have over the defections <laughs> that were occurring and tried their best to maintain the relationship with Japan. For one, you get the Tokyo Olympics, summer of 1964. The Japanese government had been expecting mass defections, but from the Soviet Union, they actually only had a three- uh, three Hungarians, one athlete, and two uh, civilians or tourists. Khrushchev had just been ousted, and they thought conditions in Hungary were going to get much worse. One was also being persecuted for participation in a 1956 revolt, and another met a Hungarian-American woman that he wanted to marry. Aww. Uh, Japanese police had to prevent Soviet officials from stopping these men at the airport, so that was obviously a very tense moment. Uh, the reason there were so few defections is that the counter effort, the policy was to fly athletes home as soon as their events were over. 
So you had just finished whatever it was you were doing the Olympics, and they whisk you away and to the airport and back to the homeland. Victor Belenko has a story very similar to Emma's. He was a pilot and flew his MiG-25 Foxbat jet fighter to Hakodate in 1976. I love the name Foxbat, by the way. It's a great <laughs> name for a plane. Where is Hakodate? Hakodate is in Hokkaido, the northernmost island in Japan. So the one most proximate to Russia. Apparently, it was a policy at the time for the U.S. government to give substantial cash rewards to pilots who defected in this way. <laughs> which I didn't know. But Belenko received a trust fund that gave him a very comfortable life. And after he was debriefed, which is a process that took about five months in his case, he worked as a consultant for the government for several years. But it's hard to overstate the value of what he brought them. The plane was closely examined and tested in Japan, not to mention completely dismantled. And this was a plane they had never had the chance to look at this closely. It told them a lot about the current Soviet Air Force. Uh, my favorite part of this story, the funniest part to me. After the plane had been studied, the Japanese government put all the parts into crates and shipped the crates back to the Soviet Union with a bill. <laughs> For $40,000 for shipping and alleged damage to the airfield at Hakodate. <laughs> the Soviets, on finding numerous parts missing, including the aircraft's footage of the flight, attempted to build Japan $10 million. Uh, neither bill has ever been paid. <laughs> so consider for a moment, Emma's brought them back these mobile suits. They're the end of their line, but they still represent the cutting edge of technology that the Titans have access to right now. It also means the Titans don't have them. They're being deprived of an incredibly valuable resource. Even if they don't trust Emma to work for Ayug, she's already done them a huge just service. A, just a huge solid. Yeah. Uh, Stanislav Levchenko was a KGB agent working undercover as a journalist in Japan starting in 1974. He defected in 1979 and in doing so exposed a massive network of more than 200 Japanese spies who were working for the Soviets. Uh, a Soviet court condemned him to death for treason and two famous spies, Svetlana and Nikolai Ogorodnikov, attempted to assassinate him but were caught up in a totally different spy case <laughs> before they could do so. <laughs> I was surprised to hear about so many Japanese spies for the Soviets. But one of my sources pointed out that many of these had formerly been held in Russian POW camps, where conditions were horrendous. They were then offered release on the condition that they turned spy. Many probably also held communist sympathies and or resentment against the United States and Japanese governments. Whatever nascent communist and socialist groups there were in Japan in the post-war period were... Uh, initially permitted to exist and then the united states freaked out and put the kibosh on that whole thing and jailed a bunch of people and or just like forbid uh and censored their publications and pamphleting and everything like that uh if you're wondering why the center right party in japan has been in power for like ever 60 or 70 years now it's because the U.S. occupation systematically dismantled the whole left wing of the country's political system. Because we were scared of the commies. And the unions. And as we've noted in some previous research pieces, a lot of soldiers were angry at the Japanese government for getting them into this. There was this sense that you got us involved in an unwinnable war, <laughs> and we're the ones who suffered. 
And so there, there would still have been considerable resentment there. Part of the reason I bring up Levchenko, other than the exposure of the Japanese spies, is because he published an autobiography of which the Japanese version came out in 1985. Hmm. Yuri Rostvorov was a senior political advisor to the Soviet mission in Japan and a lieutenant colonel in the Ministry of Internal Affairs. He was very highly placed. He had been stationed in Japan since 1946. In 1954, he received a cable recalling him to Moscow. He knew there was currently a purge of intelligence personnel underway and was worried about what might happen to him if he returned. After an attempt to defect to the British, he defected to the United States Embassy in Tokyo. I was not able to find out why he tried (laughs) to defect to the British first. He provided a massive amount of valuable intelligence, much of it about Soviet spies in Japan, participated in operational activities, and lectured at both the Naval Intelligence School and the Counterintelligence Corps School. Danger pushed him across the line, but he had other reasons to defect. His grandfather had been persecuted for hiring temporary farm labor and wound up starving in a famine. His mentor, Lavrenti Beria, director of the secret police, had been purged after Stalin's death. I also found a really wonderful article written by his CIA handler's son about the handler and Rosvorov after his death. Rosvorov had, in living in Japan, gotten to kind of enjoy this cushy capitalist lifestyle. (laughs) He was a tennis fanatic, apparently loved tennis, was okay at it, was not like incredible at it, but loved the sport, and had been encouraged to join the local tennis club because then he would get to hobnob with all these American politicians and business people. But he just went to like enjoy a game of tennis. <laughs> he started learning English. The woman he hired as an English teacher was initially very concerned and was like not sure she should take the job. But then the government contacted her and was like, no, absolutely, teach him English and talk about how great America is. <laughs> and if he, if he ever wants to come over, make sure he knows we can make that happen. Like... Uh, yeah, I'll link to the article in the show notes. It's really fascinating because one of the things that the man writing it points out is he had no idea who this man was because by the time he met him, he was under an assumed name and living in the United States. It was not until the obituary was published that he was like, oh, I remember that guy. That was my dad's friend, Bob. More or less. We get that very cryptic line from Emma that she wants to live by her own principles without ever explaining to any of us what those principles are. Presumably, they do not include trapping hostages in mom cages and then executing them in front of their children. Presumably not. And finally, one defector who had nothing to do with the Cold War, uh, but connects to last week's discussion of colonialism and his story has a lot of parallels to Zeta. Jared Burns, a 21-year-old Scottish soldier, was court-martialed and found guilty of desertion. He defected to Ireland, which was described as Southern Ireland in the article I found from the Glasgow Herald in 1974. I bet the Southern Irish love that. Well, it was a British newspaper, so... He appeared after his defection in a news conference held by the provisional IRA. Then he requested asylum. He had been a telephone operator in Belfast for the Royal Highland Fusiliers. So, not a role one imagines was particularly violent, but 
In the news conference, he described his quote disillusionment with British Army interrogation methods in Northern Ireland. He said that soldiers had no regard for the Irish in Belfast, and that he had seen a 15-year-old boy badly beaten by a group of soldiers. He had been upset seeing civilians brought in for questioning and detention. What does all that sound like? Well, this is completely different from Zeta because Emma saw a 17-year-old boy beaten by soldiers and questioned and detained. Yeah, Jared Burns wound up returning to Glasgow two years later and gave himself up to authorities at the airport. He was not considered to have aided the IRA, hence the charge of desertion rather than treason, and a sentence of six months imprisonment followed by dismissal from the service. He was also very young. They make the point that he joined the army at 18 and was described by his lawyer as being somewhat naive about the situation that he was getting himself into. Are you thinking about Emma or Camille? Can't it be both? <laughs> Next time on episode 2.6, Lias, we will cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 5 and Kira Kira, a surprise spacewalk. Jared gets desperate. Gundam jacking. Dramatic xylophone! Something that costs an arm and a leg. Corpse Captain. The worst grief counselors in space. The best take on Char. And they can repaint the mark too, but Zeta remains dark. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Evangelion was totally innovative because it was the first mecha show to feature a terrible dad on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Sample sentence. Salem Mass, side <laughs> seven survivor. Salem Mass, side seven survivor. <laughs> Salem Mass, side seven survivor. I just made a terrible pun. Salem Mass, side seven survivor? I don't know. What else should I talk about? Seven snakes from Saturn? I've been training myself to do that for how long now? 
almost a year of trying to control uh, control control my mouth noises, Tom. Control yourself, Nina. <laughs> Tom. I can't just turn my mouth off and on to suit you. My podcast talking. Should I record that again? You tapped. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was overcome by my amusement. And defectors. What are they? How do they work? Do they work? Let's find out. <laughs> As you know, I am a prima donna. One person said that. <laughs> I will carry the compliment with me forever. <laughs> but only one person said that. You killed my wife. Sorry, I can't help but think of Eddie as <laughs> You my wife. Fast turns around. I am your wife. They're just a lot more sound effects, especially the little like, like computer-y <laughs> sound effects. <laughs> <laughs>